If you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And last Sunday we examined the parable of the sower after looking at the place of parables in the ministry of Jesus. We're told in verse number 34 here in chapter 4, uh, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. The parables make up one-third of the teachings of Jesus as found in the Gospels. And yet, verse number 34 implies that everything that Jesus said was done in parables. And so if we are to appreciate the teachings of Jesus, then we need to pay attention to the parables and understand them as he intended. Jesus was Jewish. He was born into the line of David. He was born into that culture and tradition. He was sent into the world at a particular time, within a particular context, religious, political, and cultural. And we should not forget this. We cannot forget this. So when Jesus spoke parables, he was doing something that his audience, that is the Jews, were familiar with. Um, I thought I would just read a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 78.2, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Proverbs chapter 1 opens the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then he gives a list of why we have these parables for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight. In verse number 6, for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Then in Ezekiel, which we looked at last year, we find the word parable used at least three times. Um, In chapter 17, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set forth an allegory and tell the house of Israel a parable. Um, And then in chapter 20, uh, his audience is not happy with what he's saying. I said, ah, sovereign Lord, they are saying of me, isn't he just telling parables? And then finally, in chapter 24, tell this rebellious house a parable. And then in Hosea chapter 12, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. So Jesus did not create the parable as a device. This is something that his audience was familiar with. And we should not imagine, as I suspect many people do, that these are timeless stories that can apply They can, in fact, apply, I think, throughout history. Um, But they're not timeless stories. They're told within a particular context. This is a Jewish man telling a Jewish audience a series of parables to convey the truth that he wants them to hear. We saw the characteristics of the parables, and I don't want to go through all that again. But as we will see, they are uh, fictional descriptions of everyday life to which people could relate. But the thing I do want to stress is that they are theocentric. The purpose of the parables is to change the behavior and create disciples. And this is done by telling listeners about God, about God's kingdom, and the new reality that God is establishing on the earth. And we may miss this if we think, oh, this parable is about me. It's about us as the listeners. Um, Particularly the parable of the sower, where the focus seems to be on the four types of soil, and we're like, well, that, you know, that's about us. But in reality, it's about the sower. The Son of Man is the sower, and the seed is the gospel. There are different responses, 
But the fruitful response to the seed or to the word that is scattered is a result of God's grace, as we will see in another parable in a few minutes. Bear with me, we're going to cover hopefully a lot of territory today. We're going to look at a series of sayings, uh, several parables, a miracle, and then finally an exorcism. First of all, the series of sayings. Look, if you would, at verse number 21. Mark 4:21. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Um, first, the first thing that comes to mind is this doesn't seem very parable-like. It's rather a series of observations, a series of sayings, almost proverbs. Secondly, we've heard this in other portions of Scripture. Um, the lamp on the lampstand, we, we hear that in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and this brings up an important point. We should not imagine... And, and you see this when people make movies about Jesus or TV series, that it's as though he says something once and that's it. But he was a traveling preacher, a traveling teacher. And so we should, I think, correctly imagine that he said something more than once. He can just say, that's it. I've said it once, and if you didn't catch it, then that's too bad. Um, we hear him saying this in other places to different people. Okay. Having said that, I think there is, in fact, a connection to the parable of the sower. So, you know, what does it mean to put a lamp on a stand so that the light can be seen, that whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed? Perhaps this has a connection with mystery in verse number 11. If you look at verses 10 and 11, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom or the mystery of the kingdom has been given to you. That is to say, who Jesus is was hidden to most, but in fact it was revealed to those who had put their faith in him. And I think there may also be a connection to the various responses and the various results of the seeds scattered on the soil. You may remember we talked about last week that the way that they farmed in Palestine in the first century is quite different than very counterintuitive. They would scatter the seed, the seed, the sower would scatter the seed, broadcast it, and then he would plow. We would like, no, you plow and then you scatter. No, they did it the other way. And that means that the sower did not know where the rocky soil was, where the thistles were, uh, where the path would end up being, or where the good soil was. He simply scattered the seed and then plowed, and then it is God who gave the result. And all this leads to Jesus saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. Um, and the point is, care must be taken. Let one hear what one hears. One needs to be very, very careful, not simply be passing like, well, I'm just, I'm just going to wait for it to come to me. Okay, you might say, I buy that, but what about verse number 25? Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. It reminds one of the parable in Luke chapter 19. 
It's not the parable of the talents that we find in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the minas. And the mina was uh, a coin that was three months wages. Uh, an average day worker, that's how much he would earn in three months. There's a master. He has ten servants. He gives each of them one. So it's different than the parable of the town. So he gives each of them one, and he tells them, put this money to work. When the master returns, uh, one servant has gained ten more. Quite remarkable. Another has gained five more. But one simply put it away, he laid it in a piece of cloth. The master is not pleased. Um, the least that this servant could have done is put it with the money changers, with bankers, and get some interest on it. Then he said to those standing by, this is from Luke 19.24, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And then we hear words similar to our text. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but to the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. What could this possibly mean? I would suggest to you that it means standing still is not an option. That's what the foolish servant did. He just put the coin away. Whereas the others put the money to work. And if you read the parable, the master then puts them over cities. And the money that the foolish servant did not use is given to the one who did. Because he's still working. He's not standing still. We either continue to receive, or if we refuse, then what we have will be taken away. Uh, I think this is a hard saying to hear and to appreciate, but oftentimes the gospel today is presented as getting one's ticket punch, you're going to heaven, and that's it, you're okay. You just sort of put the car in neutral and just sort of coast into heaven. And... This is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying we must always be at work. We cannot stand still. Now we come to a parable in verses 26 through 29. Look if you would. He also said this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. That we've seen in the earlier parable. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. This is taken from everyday life in a farm setting. Um, and I think it is, in a sense, to balance out the parable of the sower. That lest one think, well, it all rests on me. Either I'm good soil or I'm not. If I'm rocky soil... You know, Rather than seeing it as being all on us, what we see that, in fact, we don't know how the seed, in fact, has an impact, how it grows. A farmer scatters it. He doesn't know how it grows. And whether he does anything or not, it will grow because this is the grace of God. It is a mystery. It is a great mystery. And on the day of judgment, there will be an accounting. On the harvest, then the farmer goes and takes a sickle and he harvests the grain. In the meditation that we had before the Lord's Supper, we read that, in fact, we think it's all, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and in fact, 
It is God who is looking for us, who's seeking to know us and to love us. It is God who has found us. It is God who loves us. It is God who gifts us and brings growth. Now another parable, also taken from farm life, but this is more in a garden. Uh, Verses 30 to 34, again he said, what shall we say the kingdom is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. This is a parable I think that Jesus' listeners, his first listeners, they understood. We may struggle a bit because we're not that familiar with the mustard seed. We know mustard, but not necessarily mustard seed. We're told here that it is the smallest seed that one plants in the ground. It is one to two millimeters in diameter. It's very small. But once it is planted and grows, it becomes the largest of all garden plants. Between six and 20 feet in height and a 20-foot spread. Some exceptional mustard plants can in fact reach 30 feet in height. So much so that birds can perch in its shade. What does this mean? Well, the kingdom of God seemingly has rather small beginnings. It will in fact grow, it will spread. Consider that it is Jesus, and he chooses 12 men to be his disciples, one of whom would betray him, rather humble beginnings, and yet within years the kingdom had spread. And then we come to the conclusion of this chapter, verses 33 and 34. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. As if to emphasize the point, parables are important. But we will not have another parable in the Gospel of Mark until chapter 12. It will be one in chapter 12, one in chapter 13. But Mark wants to emphasize this fact. Now we come to the last paragraph here in Mark 4. Here we have a miracle. Verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Here we are given insight into the work of Jesus. As we've studied in the past, and most recently in the Kingdom Worldview series, we need to be clear about something. Scripture ascribes all events in reality, in creation, to personal actions on the part of a personal God 
personal accountable agents, and it begins with creation. As one writer put it, God did not create a self-sustaining universe that is now left to operate in terms of autonomous laws of nature. The universe is not a giant mechanism like a clock, which God created and wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic world, nor is it an autonomous biological entity growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. This means that the universe is inescapably personal. There can be no phenomenon or event in the creation that is independent of God. This is known as cosmic personalism in contrast to cosmic impersonalism. Again, another author. Cosmic personalism affirms that all things have their being and meaning in terms of the person and plan of God. It absolutely denies the possibility of autonomy, self-sufficiency for any aspect of the universe. All creation is subordinate to God. And finally, one last author, the eternally active triune God brings all things to pass through his eternal activity, not through the establishment of impersonal processes. Baalism, on the other hand, the worship of Baal, is a religion philosophy that ascribes all events to impersonal processes that on part on the part of impersonal forces which may be mythologized as gods and goddesses. Some would argue that the choice is between cosmic personalism and impersonal processes. Um, I would say no. In any case, it is personal. The question is, who is the one at work? I bring all this up to say that when it comes to miracles, a miracle is God acting in a different way than he usually acts. He's acting in a way different from the way he normally acts. A miracle is not God breaking a law, breaking the law of nature, because there are no laws or processes to set aside. God is the eternally active God. Now, God is consistent, and so he acts in a consistent way, so that in fact, like, oh, okay, we, we see how things happen. But we shouldn't think, oh, well, that means that there's a law at work. What it means is that there's a personal God at work who acts in a consistent way. Some would say, okay, yeah, but I don't think that the universe is all processes, that there in fact is such a thing as chance. And that sort of allows for a hiccup uh, in reality for things to go in a different direction. Um, I think many today reject the notion of cosmic personalism in part because they don't recognize all things as personal. They fail to recognize God's ongoing personal activity. Jesus said in John 5, healing the man on the Sabbath, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. With the rise of the Enlightenment, uh, certain metaphors began to be used to describe nature. And as we've seen, the shift from speaking of creation to speaking of nature is already a, a monumental shift. Creation means there's a creator. Nature, eh, not quite so sure. The metaphors were a book, a clock, or a law-governed real, a realm. That's like the laws of thermodynamics. Um, and what we find as the Enlightenment develops is an increasingly depersonalized view of creation. 
beginning with the fact that we don't call it creation anymore, we call it nature. We don't see that there is a creator who is always at work. Now when we come to the story, it seems pretty straightforward. Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. I say straightforward, but this is interesting because Jesus is leaving Jewish territory and is going to Gentile territory. On the west side of the Sea of Galilee, that's Galilee, that's where the Jews are. And on the east side, where the Decapolis, the ten cities are. These are Hellenistic cities. This is Gentile territory. So that's interesting. They get in the boat and they head over. And a storm comes up. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles in length, 7.5 miles in width. It is almost 700 feet below sea level. It's really low. It is surrounded by mountains with passes. Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak in Israel, is 9,200 feet. What you have is cold air coming off the mountains, warm air coming through the passes from the desert and other places, and when the two meet, you have storms. They happen suddenly. They can be violent. Mark describes this particular storm as a furious squall. You're like, wait a minute, Damon. This sounds suspiciously like process. You have the low Sea of Galilee, you have the mountains, the cold air, and the warm air, and then you have storms as a result. This sounds like natural law at work. Um, no, God is always at, at work. Gia read to us today from Psalm 107, For he spoke and stirred up a tempest. We sing that song, I sing the mighty power of God, the moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. God is always at work. Well, the disciples are freaking out. Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat on a cushion, and they wake him up with, a, I would say, more than a hint of criticism uh, and disapproval. One might even say uh, indifference and hard-heartedness. Don't you care if we drown? The we there, by the way, doesn't include Jesus. Okay, that's, that's the disciples. And they're like, don't you care if we drown? In Matthew's account, they say, save us, Lord. It's all about them. And how does Jesus respond? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The word that is used for rebuke is what you do when you're speaking to an animate being when you speak to a person. So the fact that Jesus would address the wind as an animate object, if you wish, I think points to this whole business of cosmic personalism. The universe is personal, not impersonal. And he says, quiet, be still. And the results are that the wind died down and the sea was completely calm. We might say that this is miraculous. It is Jesus acting in a way differently than the way that God normally acts. The disciples were afraid because of the storm, we are told. Now they are terrified because of this man who is in their midst. I mean, they're freaking out because of the storm. But now there's a guy among them who says, quiet, be still. And the storm is gone. Who is this, they ask. Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then notice that Jesus asks them, 
why are you so afraid? That's of the storm. Do you still have no faith? I think we may misunderstand this if we're not careful. After all they had seen, did they not imagine that it was possible that Jesus could in fact calm the sea, that he could end the storm? I don't think that's the issue. It may be, I could be wrong. But what they had seen thus far in the ministry of Jesus is that he cared about people. The first miracle is he cast an evil spirit out of a man. And then he went to Simon's house and healed his mother-in-law. We have the man who's let down through the roof, through the ceiling. And Jesus heals him. He cares for the man. There is the leper. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him. Jesus cares. And their question at this point is, Don't you care? I think that's the issue. I mean, it would be a real stretch to imagine that Jesus could calm the storm. But more than that, did he not care enough to do something about it? He's just in the front of the boat sleeping. It seems that he does not care. He did care. And God still cares. This is where our trust is to be. But let's understand, he will not always deliver. He will not always calm the storm. You may remember the three Hebrew children who told Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your image. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We think it was a physical malady of some type, probably something fairly severe. And he asked God three times to remove it. And God said, in essence, I care. My grace is sufficient. I will not take the thorn away. They still had no faith. They did not believe that Jesus cared enough about them to save them. Now we come to chapter 5. And this is an extended passage, but this is after they get over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're in the the southern part of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern coast. First five verses, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, the NIV doesn't have it here, but immediately, the key word in Mark, a man with an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been often chained, had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I had to pause before I finished. It's hard to read this without weeping. Here we have a picture of a tormented human being. The description is heartbreaking. If nothing else, verse 5 alone, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. He's possessed by an evil spirit, the evilness of which we will see demonstrated uh, again in a bit. He's cut cut off from human society. He lives among the dead. 
The tombs were probably cut into the hillsides there along the Sea of Galilee. People bind him, but not successfully. And so night and day, he is in the tombs in the hills, crying out and cutting themselves with stones. What a pitiful and miserable condition. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. It's a rather paradoxical scene. The man falls on his knees in front of Jesus, a posture of worship. And then he shouts at and challenges Jesus, What do you want with me, Jesus? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Really? This spirit who has tormented this man, look how this man is living because of this spirit that has occupied him, has possessed him. He's like, please don't torture me. Listen, if anything else, turn, turn about fair play. I mean, what you have done to this man should be done to you. But Jesus commands this evil spirit, the evil spirit, come out of this man. And he asks him, what is your name? And this is interesting because we've seen this time and time again. Before Jesus does anything like healing or exorcism, he wants to talk. He wants a conversation. And so he asks this man, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And we find that the man is possessed by more than one spirit. A legion was a Roman army unit of consisting of between 3,000 and 6,000 men. We don't know if, in fact, there were three to 6,000 demons in this man. But in fact, a large number had somehow possessed this poor man. That they took the name Legion, I think, not only speaks of the number, okay, but of what the Roman Legion represented, an army of occupation, of cruelty and destruction. And here is a confrontation between Jesus and Satan's army and death. Verse number 10, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Why do they want to stay around there? What's so great about staying in this area? Well, where is it? It's a place of death, the tombs. You have skeletons. It's a place of death, place of destruction. They have, they suggest an alternative. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. I've mentioned this before, but you'll notice that Mark refers to these as evil spirits. We might prefer the word demons. Um, a term I was searching for the other side is domesticated. We have domesticated demons. Yeah, they're like bad spirits, but the idea of evilness, I think, is something that we have lost when we call them demons. In referring to them as evil spirits, Mark gives us insight. He reminds us of the reality of evil. A definition that we have used over the years, evil is that which is anti-creation, anti-life, that which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. 
They have certainly tried to dehumanize this man. In their evilness, they have sought, in fact, to deface, to destroy this individual. Well, now that they're going to be cast out, they want to destroy other creatures. And so they beg Jesus to let them go into the pigs. They're not content to possess these pigs. They cause them to rush down the steep, uh, a steep bank, because remember the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains, and the 2,000 pigs go into the sea and they drown, they die. And why? Because these evil spirits hate God's good creation. They will act time and time again to attempt to deface it and destroy it. Having tormented this man and made him into something almost less than human, now they've been cast out. They want to do damage somewhere else. and They want to go into the pigs. The question has been asked, why did Jesus allow the spirits to go into the pigs, knowing that it could possibly lead to a disaster? Um, Simple answer, I don't know. I don't know. Why did Jesus pick Judas? knowing that he would betray him. I don't know. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Things to consider. First of all, those tending the pigs went into town and told the people what had happened. This is mentioned twice in verse 14 and verse 16. So a full accounting is given. They must have seen what had happened with this man. And then this they can't see the demons or the evil spirits come into these pigs, but they see that now suddenly this man is liberated and the pigs are possessed and they go into the sea. And when the people see this man, he is clothed, which implies that he was naked before, that he is sitting subdued. He's not trying to break chains. He's not bound. And he's in his right mind. He's not crying out or cutting himself with stones. And what is the reaction? They have two reactions. First of all, they are afraid. They had heard the report from the eyewitnesses. They now saw the results of the deliverance of this man. It must have been accomplished by some great power or great authority. And rather than responding with awe or gratitude, they are afraid. And then... They ask Jesus, they plead with Jesus to leave their region. Why? Why would you ask Jesus to leave after he had delivered this man? Was it a fear of Jesus? Um, I think the bottom line is it's about property. It's about property. They lost 2,000 pigs. It's not an insignificant loss. Okay. But we have to ask ourselves of which which has greater value, one human being or 2000 pigs? A herd of pigs or one human being?
I think these people have their values turned upside down. They care more that they've lost the pigs than that this man has been returned to them in his right mind. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Unlike the leper who was told See that you don't tell anyone about this, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices. This man is told, go home, tell your family, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And one might say, why the different instructions? It seems like Jesus is not being consistent. Well, first of all, the leper was Jewish and he had to go to Jerusalem to the temple. There's, there are things that are in the Mosaic law where he is to have the priest testify that in fact, yes, this man used to have leprosy, he no longer does. But this man here, this man who was possessed by evil spirits, is a Gentile. He can't go to the Jerusalem, can't go to the temple. If he did go to Jerusalem and go to the temple, they wouldn't let him into the temple proper, only into the court of the Gentiles. But here he is given a command. Go home, tell your family, tell them what the Lord has done, how he's had mercy on you. And as we saw, the leper did not obey Jesus. The leper didn't go to Jerusalem, didn't go to the temple and offer sacrifices. They should. In fact, what he did was he told everyone and Jesus could not enter towns because of this man's disobedience. This man does, in fact, obey Jesus and the people are amazed. Now, you may be wondering why we covered so much territory today, so, you know, so many verses. Um, there's something that I've done with my students uh, in university when I have them do a reading. I give them a reading assignment. Uh, usually they have four or five articles to read. And so I break them up into groups and I say, okay, I want you to summarize the reading in one word. Or sometimes two words or three words. But you imagine you've read an article of about 25 pages and you're supposed to put it in one word. Well, we've looked at all these verses today, okay? Beginning in chapter four and going through the first 20 verses of chapter five. Let's summarize it into one word. And what would that word be? It would be creation. It would be creation. The mystery of growth. The farmer scatters the seed, goes home, goes to bed. If he stays in bed, if he gets up, it doesn't matter. It grows. It is, in fact, the grace of God that allows these things to happen. The kingdom of God is seen in creation like a mustard seed, tiny seed that grows into a large plant. We have the calming of the sea. Jesus acting in a way differently than what he normally acts. We are not governed by natural laws. We are governed by a God who oversees every single aspect of our being. And so we're not surprised when Jesus speaks and rebukes, as though he's speaking to a person, he rebukes the storm and it goes away. We have the deliverance of a man made in God's image. A man who is occupied, like a Roman legion occupies territory, 
by a host of evil spirits. But he's one made in God's image and Jesus delivers him. But then we also see how that evil spirits want to destroy creation. They're trying, they've tormented this man. I mean, why don't they just kill him and get it over with? They want to dehumanize him. And when that is no longer a possibility because Jesus casts them out, then they go over and decide, let's kill all these pigs. Let's kill all these animals, animals that God has created. Evil seeks to deface, destroy creation. This is something we really need to take to heart. That creation is something that God is personally involved with all the time. And he cares about his creation. We should as well. And we should care about those who are made in his image. You know, students have in the past by different teachers been given this problem to solve. You have a choice. You have this man who is in his 80s or 90s, and then you have this animal, which is the last of its species. And only one of them, you can only allow one to live. Which will you allow to live? We might put this to the people in this story. You have a man over here made in God's image, tormented by demons, and you have these pigs. Which do you want to preserve? And they're thinking, like ours so often is so messed up, they're sadder about the pigs than they are about the man. They cast the man out from society, let him live among the dead. We are to care about God's creation and God's creatures, particularly those who are made in his image. Because God has shown great grace in each of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us. We confess that we don't get it all, we don't understand it all. But the parts that we do, by your grace, open up our eyes to the reality of your love and your grace. How you care about your creation. How you've not abandoned us to sort of be governed by autonomous laws. But you're, you're at work even now. The fact that each one of us is able to breathe right now is because you are at work. How easily we lose sight of that. And you do care about us. You do care about human beings. Oftentimes in our anger, we dehumanize one another perhaps even referring to a person as a pig, you pig, forgetting that that one is made in God's image. Forgive us, we pray. May we trust you that you do care about us. It doesn't mean that you will calm every storm in our lives. 
but your grace is sufficient. May we trust you. By your spirit, drive these truths home in our hearts. May we think on them in the days to come. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for Tom and Ann Corey as they travel, that you'd give them safety. We're grateful that they're able to spend time uh, with Aaron and with Zip, with their grandchildren. Keep them safe, we pray. And now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.